Hello and welcome to This Human Business, a podcast exploring the growing call among business professionals to counter the dominance of digital algorithmic technology with renewed appreciation for the human contributions to commerce. I began this podcast with an episode celebrating the House of Beautiful Business, an annual gathering of executives, consultants, artists, and researchers dedicated to the idea that business can be beautiful. Beautiful business is a wonderful ideal, but if we are to achieve it, we will have to confront some ugly realities about how business is often practiced. One of the ugly sides of business has been exposed by the Me Too movement. About a year ago, people began disclosing their experiences of sexual assault and harassment by people in positions of power, and often those abuses of power have been enabled by a larger culture of sexism pervading the business world. This episode, the last of the first season of this podcast, will focus on issues of gender in business and the larger questions of identity that they imply. The discussion will begin with Aditi Kurana, a journalist, Hollywood marketing executive, and author of two novels, Mirror in the Sky and The Library of Fates. She is scheduled to speak about issues of gender at the House of Beautiful Business a few weeks from now, and when I asked her about the ideas she will be bringing to that work, she framed it in terms of a story, the mythology of Lilith, the first wife of Adam. Kind of like rise out of the ashes of your own destruction. And it's cyclical. You keep doing it again and again and again and again. Um, and the Lilith myth kind of speaks to that, where you sort of see this character breaking apart an old life and creating a new one for herself, which I think is kind of like how a lot of women I know live. We come up with conditioning through the society that we live in, through our parents, through our friends, our peers, that, I mean, this conditioning really has nothing to do with us. And I think our job as the heroines on our own journey is to destroy that conditioning and to light it on fire. And often that means kind of lighting your own ego on fire and lighting your own identity on fire or the identity that you have sort of been framed with in order to come to sort of like a truer version of who you are, even though it's like a intensely painful process and, and requires and involves a lot of loss and a lot of fear and facing your own fears. It is kind of like engineering your own identity after rejecting one that was never really yours to begin with. Aditi's story centers around women who become heroines by destroying their own identities, ones that aren't doing the work that they need in search of new ones that offer better terms. The Me Too movement as she sees it involves the expression of pain and loss, in order to create the materials and space for the growth of an improved overall social identity. You know, we've spent the past year with, with the Me Too movement and um, Time's Up sort of taking women's experiences and their narratives into account. And I think that women in the workplace, I mean, I worked in entertainment marketing, I worked as a journalist, and that entire time, like most women, I was aware of the fact that this world is not really constructed 
for me or by people like me. And that sort of makes you want, like, it, it makes you want to construct a better world. So I actually think, and again, I hate to sound gendered about it, but I'm going to, that women are better visionaries than men because they have to be, because they have to consider a better world because they live in a pretty compromised world. The, the workplaces that we enter were not constructed for us or by us. They were constructed for and by men. And you can take even sort of like the minutia of like, you know, like there was a, a piece in the times a couple of years ago about how like thermometers, like the temperature in office buildings is set to the body temperatures of men, things like that. <laughs> you know, like, or, you know, just now we're talking about breastfeeding stations in workplaces, but we're also talking about flexible hours, maternity leave, but also just kind of this idea of, women being taken seriously, women being harassed in the workplace, women having this right to basic dignity in the workplace. I think that businesses will only improve if you raise the bar, and the only way you can raise the bar is really by listening to women and their experiences and realizing that men don't really have a lot of incentive to kind of change what is already essentially working for them on a lot of levels. To be honest, I don't think corporate America is really working for anybody, but like, but it's working better for men than it is for women. Women actually have an incentive to sort of actively participate and create change. It's a huge historical moment, Aditi says. And Martina Olbertova, the founder of Meaning Global, explains that it's about much more than just sexual harassment. It's basically signaling a much larger macro trend happening on a much in a much higher level, which is all about striving for transparency and authenticity and and free speech and women finally reclaiming their voice and having a sense of empowerment to talk about their own authentic experience of business in order to give way give way to making it better in the future it's just a classic thing it's so hilarious actually because i'm talking about this this thing about authenticity transparency um and women reclaiming their voice and yet i'm in a loss of words because i don't want to sound impolite so there's still this like fundamental way that women keep self-censoring themselves to not come across as bossy or bitchy or vulgar or, or something. But basically what I wanted to say is it's emblematic of the shit leaving the system because it's been a part of our system for many decades and women are, women are now feeling empowered and safe to talk about what actually has been happening to them. And they're starting to realize that they're not the victims in in this narrative, basically, because it is a cultural narrative that we live in. The fact that you are a victim of something and you keep silent. And that's the way it is. And it only gives a more, more power to the perpetrator because nobody will believe you. Um, and they're realizing that it's a narrative. And if we want to shake that narrative down and open it up and give it transparency and start talking, that we absolutely have all the power that we that we want. But it's up to women to stand up and, and decide 
for their own. And I think that that's exactly what's happening now. Like Lilith, Martina wants to shake down the traditional narrative of gender in business, open it up and make something new in its place. Aditi and Martina have focused on the status of women in business culture, but Julia von Winterfeld, the founder of Soulworks, opens up this vision of a revolution of gender roles in business to something that's even bigger than that. For her, it gets down to the gender identity of business itself. We've evolved business into, into being a more masculine form of being um, in organizations. Um, I think all of us, whether male or female, carry masculine and feminine characteristics. Um, we have that in us. We are all complete humans. And only because we carry a certain gender um, doesn't mean that we can't have access to more feminine qualities um, or more masculine qualities. We have everything in us. But I think with most of us, uh, we pick up on a certain set of qualities that can be more masculine or can be more feminine. And when we are working in the world of business, uh, we've kind of learned that we need to embrace the masculine so being directive, being competitive, being top of the game, coming out first and sort of having a more driven uh, kind of format. And, uh, and we've kind of lost uh, what I like to call the feminine in this world of business. And unfortunately or fortunately, we as women can actually access these feminine qualities when we really allow the feminine to emerge in us, we can access those a little bit more easily <laughs> than men. And, and yet we, we hold ourselves back, or at least I did, um, hold, a, hold ourselves back from bringing this into the world of business because that's not how we've learned to know what business or how to carry out business. But these, these, these feminine qualities are just so important. And I, um, when I talk of feminine qualities, I believe that you can reduce that to two things. Um, one is people-driven or drivenness, and the other is purpose-led. So for example, when I ask people, so what do you think is feminine leadership? Then I often get the answer of, well, it's all about empathy, compassion, balance, deep listening, equity, um, uh, selflessness, um, humility, exactly, intuition. Those are, uh, those are what we, at least when I ask these questions, are what we associate with more the feminine characteristics or even feminine leadership. And when I think about it, I think, yeah, it's really difficult for us in the world of business to embrace intuition it's like no i've you know i've got to do facts and figures and uh, i need to be data driven and data um growth um or numerically uh, driven so uh, intuition as an example is really difficult or you know we hardly um think of business as being selfless um because you know we've got to we're competitive we've got to make it to the top of the market um etc but um now for me the it's the time to really embrace this feminine. And as I said, I think women leaders are more apt to accessing these parts um, than our male leaders. But I 
absolutely believe that both genders uh, and anything in between obviously carry both feminine and masculine qualities. As Julia continues to talk about the problems of gender imbalance in business, it becomes increasingly clear that from her perspective, restoring balance isn't just about what happens to women. There is work for men to do as well. To lead with kindness, um, and kindness not uh, to say be soft, as, as we often like to believe, but actually kindness in that we strengthen the ability in others and, um, and really look to support um, or be a catalyst for, uh, to support someone else. And that, I think, if we can do that and with, under the aspect of being people-driven um, and we access these more feminine, for me, qualities, I think we'll, we'll transform so much more in businesses. And as I said, I think women are able to respond to that or resonate with that far more intuitively than um, our male colleagues. Uh, so, yeah, there's work to be done there <laughs> on both sides, ultimately. How can you access that? How can you um, be real uh, with yourself? Um, it does need, as with all, but now let's stick with our male leaders. Uh, it does need this openness for introspection. And I, and I actually do believe that it's actually very supportive to have a male group of leaders come together. I don't actually think it is always accessible when you have a female uh, or females in the group, but instead really have this male coming together, but in a way where you are brought to a place of truly unraveling yourself and getting to know yourself, not just from this, to use your words, the aggressive, the competitive, or even the abusive side that I can carry or maybe even have. Because having man-to-man -man be so vulnerable is the most heart-opening experience a man can have. Obviously, I've, I haven't experienced this, I don't know this, but when you have mixed groups um, and you bring leaders together to unravel themselves, there's always a, a sense of humaneness in males as there is in females of this old DNA that we have, you know, be someone, be a cool guy. And the woman is, oh, I'm going to be a cool woman. And, you know, you try and attract the other on a different level or on a subtle level. But when you're just under, when you just have men, it's like when you have just women groups, I think there's even more power in really transforming uh, the, the male to acknowledge and accept and to go through these maybe even tearful experiences of seeing, wow, I don't have to be as strong and as aggressive as I've thought to have been to be a real man. When Julia talks about opening up people's identities to encompass something more broad than what the traditional gender stereotypes in business allow for, she isn't just speaking abstractly. These are tasks that she engages in on a regular basis in her work with business leaders. I was struck by the knitting metaphor Julia used as she talked to me about these interactions that she fosters at SoulWorks with the unraveling of our conventional identities as a goal rather than as a disaster to be avoided. I pictured in my mind at that moment the image of our gendered professional identities 
as a kind of sweater that we put on to create a presentable cover for ourselves at work. Whether the yarn is soft and comfortable or woolly and itchy, it bears changing from time to time, a cleaning, even a re-knitting, perhaps, as our shape changes over the years. It's not an easy thing to expose our vulnerabilities, of course, or to call into question the fundamental strands from which we have woven the fabric of our professional identities. But if we're honest, we will admit that there have been holes growing in the old, masculine-centered way of doing business for some time now. The yarn is stained and stretched. It isn't comfortable anymore, and maybe it never really was a good fit for many of us. So, the choice is not really whether unraveling of the fabric of the masculine identity of business culture will take place, but whether we will take control of the unraveling in a purposeful way, or just continue to deny that the whole arrangement is on the verge of falling apart under its own sagging weight. The emperor is on the verge of having no clothes, and the Me Too movement is calling attention to that. When I asked researcher Andy Acaster about his impressions of this moment of cultural exposure, he framed it as an opportunity, perhaps along the lines of Aditi Karana's allegory of Lilith. It is presenting an opportunity for us to kind of look at the cultural norms that, are, that have dominated art, science, industry, society for so long and calling into an account a need to, to examine some of you know some of those foundations and, and, and to really ensure that we are kind of progressing as a species that way, um, that we are truly holding dear as a value the potential of all people, you know, men and women. I think we as a culture are through this also kind of refining and committing ourselves to an ethical humanism that, that undergirds this too, which is, you know, that idea that like all life is valuable, all human life is valuable, um, independent of gender, maybe even because of gender. I think a part of my, what I'm taking away from that is my, my responsibility, my obligation to, to really make sure that I have a clear cut ethic for what it means to interact with women and to believe in women and to champion women and to recognize even my status of privilege culturally that way and make sure that I, 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 I check that but also that I use that as a vehicle for no longer just like complicitly uh, sitting alongside women um, but, but actually kind of making sure that we're, we're guarding and creating opportunity for them to, to step into the fore. What stood out to me was the way that Andy identified a responsibility he holds in this moment as a man in business. Earlier in this episode, Aditi Karana suggested that the role for men in business who care about gender issues right now is to listen to women as they talk. If what Andy is saying has any merit, though, listening is not enough. It's a tricky balance, because men can't take charge of the effort to fix things in business. Men taking control of everything has been part of the problem, 
After all, it can't be our job to rescue women, to be paternalistic about it. On the other hand, men stepping back and letting women take care of all the dirty work of cleaning up sexism has been part of the problem too. The way I see it, there's too much work to be done for men to sit this one out and allow women to do all the cleaning up. We don't have a clear definition for what masculinity is, right? Like it's all based on assumptions, cultural tropes and stereotypes. And in our culture, it's so muddy and it's so dominated by these archetypes that feel increasingly divorced from the realities that we're living mm -hmm. in, right? I'm reading this great book. It's called It's Better Than It Looks by Greg Easterbrook, and it's sort of this counter-narrative towards the doom <laughs> doomsday scenarios that we're in right now. And his, his main point being that like we're in you know, a, a season of remarkable change, much more rapid than human civilization has ever advanced before. So it's, a, it's um, to be expected that we react out of fear, but here's some, and he has kind of goes through these different um, aspects of society where the narratives are very doom and gloom and kind of offers a counter narrative of where actually progress is being made, da 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 um, but a piece of the, the, the first element that he talks about in the very first chapter is the impact of urbanization, re-urbanization of society. More Americans live in, more people throughout the world live in cities than they have at any other point before. There was kind of a corrective after the 50s and 60s and now people are moving back into the cities and the trend is only looking to accelerate all that much more. So we're moving away from the agrarian, frontiersman, hyper-masculine ideal of that, right? Like, that's it, um, all, all of those narratives which have dominated our colonial, post-colonial sort of culture for so long are, aren't going to be as relevant because there's a new urban identity that's going to need to form along with it. You know, and that urban identity is going to be one that involves constant interaction with people of all stripes, but certainly between men and women. Um, and so I think that that kind of upends the narrative or the question of what masculinity is all the more. If it's not about the hunter-gatherer, provider, strong man, then what does it take? How do, you, how do we define what a man is within the context of like a, some, uh, a figure within a deeply multicultural, broadly diverse sort of community overall? And I don't know, I mean, again, like, it, that's, it's impossible. So, like, not only do we not have, like, a clear-cut definition of masculinity today that is independent of those cultural tropes of the past, the, the, the need that we have to define it is, is in, like, rapid flux all the more right now. And, and, yeah, and we don't have really voices that are moving to the fore and being able to offer that definition or that exploration in a way that doesn't feel quite, that doesn't feel as gender exploitive as, as maybe it has in the past. I would hope that we would start to find empowerment through our courage to be people on a messy journey of awareness, of self-awareness, which I think is sort of like a counter-narrative to what, what like to the toxic masculinity is, you know. Andy's Reflections show us that gender issues aren't just women's issues. The Center for Gender in Organizations at Simmons College defines its focus 
on issues of gender at work as follows. Rather than viewing gender as a problem that individual women face at work, we analyze how gender is embedded in an organization's work practices and culture. Well, that's the approach that I'm aiming for in this podcast episode as well. The identities of many men in business are mismatched with the narrow expectations we have for what men are and what men are capable of being. The tropes about success in business are the same as the cliches about what it takes to be a real man, dominance, aggression, and the suppression of emotion. The masculinity of business culture is riddled with hollow, exaggerated displays that cannot be sustained and don't reflect the complex, nuanced experiences that shape men's authentic emotional lives. Men in business spend a lot of time pretending to be something that they're not, and that's bad for business because it leads to critical misalignments in both organizational culture and customer relationships. There are many men in business who find ways to personally profit from sexist systems of oppression. As Aditi Karana has pointed out, these men have little interest in changing gender dynamics in commercial culture. At least as many men, however, are suffering from patterns of abuse that are associated with sexist organizational culture, even if their suffering is not sexist in itself. A sexist business culture is more likely than others to be racist, homophobic, intolerant of cultural differences, and generally disrespectful of individual needs. These attitudes are bad for most people outside of the corporate pinnacles of power. Getting men to recognize the ways in which sexist business culture harms them will bring more people into programs for equitable gender dynamics. And as my grandmother taught me, many hands make light work. Professor Ronit Kark of the Department of Psychology and the Gender Studies Program at Bar Ilan University writes that, if we want men to join in constructing an equal and inclusive organization, we need to portray gender equity as an issue that affects and pertains to them as well. Unfortunately, many men aren't responding well to the Me Too movement. There are those, of course, who denounce the entire thing. A common and more subtle problem is for men to shift into a position of defensive inaction, a position in which the most that they're willing to do to improve the situation is to offer brief statements of verbal support to Me Too, and then simply hunker down and concentrate on not doing anything bad. I asked Andy about this and whether this response might be due to a kind of panic. Andy countered that instead, men in business might be following another masculine stereotype, a withdrawal from emotional engagement. Are men prone to panic? 
I feel like men um, seek to continually guard themselves from panic. I don't know that they ever really, most men let themselves feel panic. They don't want to believe that panic is an option. Yeah, I, I, and I think that, that that's maybe like an element of, of masculinity that is less than helpful in our current culture. I mean, I think we're, we're I mean, I think it's true of a lot of things in life. We, we, numbness is sort of our friend. We don't want to feel too much, but I think the, I think the fear of not knowing, the fear of not being in control, I think especially for a lot of men is a very real motivator. Um, and so there's a lot of self-preservation um, that kind of happens, I think, to, to, gird, to yeah, gird themselves from that. Business culture throughout the world has long been dominated by a narrative of male leadership, you know, mm-hmm. um, about focusing sort of on the bottom line. You can look at the business world and you can see that it's very much driven by that bottom line, deliver, 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 you know. But we've lost, a lot of businesses at least have lost the beauty of the process. Hypermasculine business culture is dangerous because it seems strong even as it creates pervasive weaknesses. For one thing, masculine habits lead people in business to express levels of confidence that are not in accord with actual conditions. This October, researchers at the University of Bath concluded that excessive optimism is a major factor in business failure. Cracks in the standard masculine identity that has been made the default in business environments haven't received as much study as they deserve. Designer Gunter Wehmeyer observes that this lack of attention has perpetuated a narrowing of the range of masculine identities, often leaving men in business to conclude that they must choose between following along with abusive masculine practices on the one hand and being ostracized for not being real men on the other. Um, I was thinking about the, um, the scripts that women and men play in society also or in business. And, you know, um, women, they had a feminism movement, they had a liberation and um, they uh, got offered a new identity and a new script to create, like womanism um, created an inclusive vision of progress for women, especially women of color. And then there were other other movements like uh, the LGBTI movement, advocacy for a new identity, pride for people. And I really think these are important developments to play, but um, what I'm missing and what I'm kind of think which is lacking in society and especially in business is that there is no new script for men like men are still working with an ancient script where they are supposed to be in charge and uh, where they need to be self-sufficient and if you think about um, leadership that uh, masculinity has become a synonym with uh, traits like leadership and strength uh, while femininity is connected with passivity and gentleness so i think um men are still working with an ancient script which um, they haven't overcome yet and I think if we are discussing what masculine leadership means we need to find out what does it really mean to be a male in current society. As Gunther points out, while men in business 
are all too eager to talk about innovations in technology. They have accepted without question downright archaic traditions of what it means to be a man. That is lazy. What if men were willing to hack their masculinity, to give it a long overdue system update, to innovate it to match a cultural reality in which the equal presence and participation of women is the norm rather than an aberration. It's hard to argue that an organization that embraced and supported this kind of project would not have a creative advantage and foster a culture of heightened engagement from employees of all genders. Martina Olbertova urges us to work together on creating a business world in which gender doesn't matter. The implications of this approach can be confusing, though. How can we work together on gender issues when gender differences, by their very nature, suggest the honoring of difference? I think it's, it's something that we have to do together. I think that we need, obviously, we need men who condemn this kind of behavior to make women feel safe because the the last thing that should possibly happen is to is for this to create an even bigger divide in between men and women and for women to fear men and for men to think that all women are, are possibly going to call them out for something they may or may not have done so it it cannot breed this culture of distrust so i think that the first instance obviously active compassion like listening and actually making sure that I am not doing anything harmful but at the same time I think it needs to go way beyond that I think that we need to create a culture together men and women where we both can collaborate and almost make gender much less of an issue or much less of a topic because in business world I honestly don't know why that's such a such a prominent topic. I don't understand why women in business is a standalone thing because men in business isn't. I don't understand why you have female entrepreneurs when male entrepreneurs are just entrepreneurs. Like there isn't any reason why we should gentrify women more than we gentrify men. Martina is presenting us with some difficult questions. Why do we consider gender issues to be only women's issues. When everybody has a gender, men as well as women need to deal with their own gender identity in relationship to the gender identities of others. As Tim Leberecht, author of The Business Romantic and co-founder of The House of Beautiful Business explains, revelations from the Me Too movement have made it plain that men's behavior needs to change. But how? The Me Too movement, um, I mean, it's probably one of the most significant social transformations and movements that we've seen in, in a long, long time with already enormous impact. We'd like to address it in a very, um, in, in a way that we hadn't maybe done before at this year's house. So we'll have sessions about that. We have sessions on, on gender. We have sessions on fluid identities. Uh, we have sessions on vulnerability and power and how that power expresses itself in, in subtle and not so subtle ways in business. The other related aspect is, is really the notion of male identity, which is, I think, very much uh, undergoing a transformation right now, especially with automation 
and AI threatening many of our jobs. You know, the question is also like, what will that do to those who have defined themselves mostly through work as the centerpiece of their lives? And many of them happen to be men, given our current economic um, circumstances. So I think that's another really, really important question. Like, what does it mean to be a man uh, in the 21st century in the age of machines? You know, when old sort of ways of expressing oneself and manifesting one's identity uh, are shifting very rapidly. Tim's question, what does it mean to be a man in business, is deceptively simple. It's one thing to establish rules and guidelines for what behavior will be tolerated, but another thing entirely to establish an identity that will support those codes. Right now, the focus is on bad behavior, but negative changes, ones that merely remove unwanted behaviors, won't be sufficient or sustainable. If men in business retain the same identity, merely controlling their degraded attitudes, emotions, and impulses, then the maintenance of a healthy working environment will depend on eternal vigilance. We need men in business to be better, not just to behave in better ways. Lasting improvements will come from changing what men do by enabling them to change who they are. This means that men in business are going to have to grapple with the fundamental conceptual components of their identities, confronting, in all its difficult complexity, the more profound dimensions of Tim's question. What does it mean to be a man? This isn't just an important question for men. It's an essential question for anyone who is working in the business world because the default identity in business culture is masculine. The practice of business has traditionally been seen as an inherently masculine practice. That means that if there's a problem with masculinity in business, it isn't just a problem with individual men behaving badly in business. It's a problem in business itself. By confronting masculinity, working to understand it and finding ways to expand and reform its vision, we can also find ways to expand and reform the practice of business. Facing up to the problems and limitations in masculinity, we can find ways to transcend those problems and limitations in business as a whole. We can open up business so that it can be practiced in new ways, ones that aren't masculine at all, and ones that remain masculine but defy the traditional rules about how masculinity has to work. When I spoke with anthropologist Thomas Maschio, he unpacked this association and explored its implications. There's a kind of base rock series of dimensions of masculine kind of gender ideology, which we see coming up again and again in, in various cultures, uh, even relatively egalitarian ones like the Bushmen of the Kalahari, and then more hierarchical ones uh, as well. And I think kind of the, the foundations of masculinity have been performance in a work role measured by sacrifice and service to family needs, 
work or responsibility it never can be questioned by a man as a moral compunction to provision kith and kin now you may that's kind of a positive dimension of masculinity i wouldn't call that toxic in any sense it's a kind of universal dimension of it other dimensions are not so positive i mean cross-culturally physical and moral courage uh, dignity and a courageous stoic demeanor in the face of any threat is something that men have had to exhibit, uh, maybe not for their own good. <laughs> and whatever restraint on violence they practice was always based on an intimation that there was a capacity for violence that you, you had to be a man to be reckoned with. That was an, that's an aspect of the threat of violence is perhaps more problematic, but it's there in cross-cultural constructs of masculine gender. There's activity. Men have to be convinced to be active rather than passive. They have to be out in the marketplace performing. They have to be extroverted versus introverted. They have to strive for autonomy versus dependence. There's an agonistic, a Greek word, contest, anger in the marketplace, you know, which touches on your questions about masculinity and business, which has traditionally been viewed as a kind of competitive mono-a-mono field. These ideas reminded me of something that David Altschul said back in the second episode of this podcast about the metaphors that form the skeletons of the stories we tell about what business is. One of the core metaphors of business, he told me, was the metaphor of business as war. When we activate the war metaphor in business, Nashio suggests, we are activating a form of masculinity that regards threats and violence as legitimate tools for getting what we want. Is it any wonder that, with the warrior's masculinity so prevalent in the business world, men feel that they have the license to harass and assault women to get what they want? Is this the way that things have to be? I don't think so. Men certainly are born with some potential for making war, but that doesn't mean that they're born warriors. Men have to be made into warriors and in business as in our wider society. They have to be made into abusers. Violent, abusive masculinity takes some elements of instinct, to be sure, but in its finished form, it's a social construction. All of human society and culture seems to, a lot of it seems to be aimed toward convincing men that this is all meaningful and this construct of masculinity is worthy and, and meaningful for them to strive for and they have to, they have to make themselves men. They have to strive to realize this ideal or these series of ideals within themselves. And society's big problem has been, a big problem for society has been convincing men that it was worth it. <laughs> that I think there's an the intuition there that men are made by themselves and others. They're not naturally men and they have to go through these tests to achieve their gender identity. And society is very worried, has been historically, that they won't do that, <laughs> that they won't sign on that they won't do these things, that there's something unpleasant about it, and I guess in the word of the day, toxic. Uh, and, you know, I could go on and on about the kind of rituals and 
strategies of persuasion that men are subject to, or boys in various cultures, hazing rituals that, that are done to them, but can be quite horrific or challenging anyway, sometimes beautiful at the same time, but some of those rituals. But I think at, lying at the back of them is a perception that men are made and not born and that they have to be convinced to accept this this responsibility or this gender identity. And, and where we're at now is that, no, <laughs> you know, that, that leads to problems at certain aspects of it for men and especially for, for women. So we're really in a, a time of reevaluation of uh, this whole series of constructs of, of gender, especially the male gender. As Machio says, we are in a time of reevaluation of the constructs of gender and that applies to women as well as men. If we don't accompany the critical reformation of gender with a parallel reformation of business identity though, people in business, whether they are male or female, will likely be trapped in the same old traditional models of aggressive masculinity that have been causing so much trouble. One of the things that makes traditional masculinity such a trap is that the competitive nature of it demands that men not show any vulnerability. Men often look at a vulnerability as something that competitors can take advantage of to destroy us, rather than as an opportunity to learn how to be better and to change. So something that you'll often hear is men condemning the abuse of sexism of other men while loudly asserting that they haven't taken part in abusive sexism themselves. Actually, we often find out later that those same men have engaged in some kind of a sexist abuse of power, but they didn't want to admit it before because they didn't want to make themselves vulnerable to attack. The truth, however, will come out. And so the trouble that comes when men in business don't want to admit that they themselves have been involved in the culture of sexism, it breeds mistrust that makes actual progress possible. These issues are not easy to talk about. When I interviewed people for this podcast and the topic of technological innovation came up, Everybody wanted to talk about that. Technology is a safe subject for discussion because it's all about objects outside of ourselves, emotionless things that don't hint at our own imperfections. When I asked people to talk about gender in business, however, men and women alike became very apprehensive. They were worried that they would say the wrong thing. It's easy to say the wrong thing when talking about issues of gender and identity because the models for gender in business are intricately, thoroughly messed up. And no matter who we are, we find ourselves in the middle of that mess. When we talk about gender in business, we are implicated. In order to move forward, we have to find ways to talk about these issues honestly. That's why I'm serving as a co-host of a session on gender and identity in business at the House of Beautiful Business a few weeks from now. 
It's also why I am establishing a website at genderandbusiness.com to encourage honest, fruitful discussions on the subject before the in-person encounter in Lisbon. I want to make it clear to model honesty on this subject that I do not claim to speak as a model citizen on issues of sexism. I am in the middle of the mess of it all, just like everybody else, and I was raised to be a man, and that means that there are moments in my past that I am not proud of, in which I didn't do the right thing, in which I was part of the problem. As men begin to enter into discussions of gender in business, we have to resist the masculine competitive standard of covering up our flaws and pretending that they don't exist. I'd like to think that as I have aged and gained experience, I've become better at interacting with people in a respectful way, but I still don't have it all figured out. The point isn't competitive perfection. The point is to try to make it better. I believe that we can. I believe that men, as well as women, hold the potential within themselves to engage in cooperative, respectful, emotionally infused ways of doing business that get beyond the masculine cliches of battles in the marketplace. Thomas Maschio is looking for these cultural openings as well. There's can be more communal forms of kind of business organization, business interrelationships. I don't want to use essentialist discourse and call these more feminine because they're not. They're more human aspect. They're different aspects of humanity, I think. And, and rather than speak in essentialist gender terms, you know that that certainly is certainly is something you know we have to consider. I, I just um, looking at discussions of leadership in business. You know, I see some of the same tropes about women leaders. They have to lean in. They have to be active rather than passive and dynamic. They have to be extroverted. They have to show their autonomy versus dependence. You know, they have to be tough enough to engage in the, the contest, the agon of, of life and business. I'm just wondering um, if we're not reproducing the, a similar model here as, we, as women increasingly assume leadership roles. Machio's ideas remind me of the reaction against the argument by Facebook executive Sheryl Sandberg that in order to become more successful in business, women need to become more like men by learning to lean in. The Me Too movement has shown us the dark side of the lean in metaphor the eagerness of business leaders to lean into the personal space of their underlings comes with consequences. Thomas Maschio urges us not to be reductionist in the way that we think about gender. There isn't a single masculine way of doing business any more than there is a single strategy that women bring to business. We can't reduce it to broad categories such as feminine and masculine either as women can adopt masculine modes and men can adopt feminine modes. And maybe there are other possibilities too. What's more, the last several years have brought a radically expanded awareness that gender isn't just a matter of men and women. After years of being relegated to the margins or even living in hiding, 
increasing numbers of people are publicly adopting transgender, non-binary, and fluid gender roles. If you believe that transgender and gender fluid issues are marginal and not relevant to the practice of your business, you're missing the point. And you're ignorant of the cultural history of commerce itself. I urge you to go back and listen to the special bonus episode of This Human Business that came out a few weeks ago under the title, The Mythology of Hermes, God of Commerce. It's in the strange divinity of Hermes, not in the arid philosophy of Adam Smith, that the commercial culture of business has its roots. In fact, the word commerce is nothing more than a Latin term that means with Hermes. The Romans referred to Hermes as Mercury and the gods' cultural practices as Mercs. It's also from Hermes and from the goddess Aphrodite that we get the word hermaphrodite. In some parts of ancient Greece, hermaphrodite was the child of Hermes and Aphrodite. In others, hermaphrodite was none other than Hermes and Aphrodite in combination. For in these places, Hermes and Aphrodite were understood to be a single being, two aspects of the same divine power the caduceus of Hermes and the symbol of commerce to this day is a symbol of fluid identity. Gender bending isn't something made up by David Bowie. Gender fluidity and non-binary identity are not millennial inventions. They are concepts that are thousands of years old and are at the very heart of what business is all about. This revolution in gender representation isn't just a liberation for a minority of people who stand outside the mainstream. It's a revelation of how we all experience identity, showing that what businesses once understood as firm and reliable points of data are actually much more ambiguous and unpredictable. Learning to navigate the complexity of gender dynamics will help businesses learn how to deal with other complex identity issues as well. And human identity is always complex. We all balance multiple identities because the social world that has been established through commercial culture is too rich and multidimensional to be navigated by just one true self. Too often, Business algorithms are incapable of dealing with this, ambiguity. In a fluid world, they remain rigidly digital, categorizing people as a one or a zero, when really, we move in the spaces between the numbers. Doug Grant, the founder of Inqui, has experienced the problems that result when businesses attempt to assign people into static types that don't reflect the ambiguity of life as it is actually experienced. Sometimes you get people who are just don't make the connection with people as people and they start using broad general terms. And um, so millennial has been a classic one where they start using it as this catch-all stereotype about you know, the millennials are whatever, they're lazy and they're technology savvy and blah, blah, blah. You know, they got this whole 
batch of things that are complete nonsense. Um, and, you know, you look at, if you were to put a, a bunch of photos together of a bunch of millennials, you know, you're going to see a wide range of people with a, if you were to interview them, they have a wide range of belief sets. I mean, to glump people together like that is just a little bit crazy. Um, and what I found is like, what works much better is when, when we do our recruiting, we don't recruit based on any kind of demographic set or any kind of, uh, you know, any, you know, age or uh, household income or anything like that. We always just recruit based on their behavior because it's much more telling into what people think. Even as digital businesses amass enormous mountains of data about what we do, they still don't really understand who we are. There are those in Silicon Valley who insist that this doesn't matter. They argue that people can be reduced to a combination of simple, objective measurements. When we expand our view beyond data analytics, we can see that it's just not that simple. Whenever businesses seek to cram our identities into neat and tidy little quantitative categories, their predictive models lead to predictably dysfunctional ends. Silicon Valley's data-driven systems tend to replicate traditional patterns of discrimination because the perspective of automated analytics is grounded in prejudice. The idea that people can be organized into habit-bound, predictable types. Martina Olbertova points out that the facile personas that typify the design orthodoxy in business alienate businesses from the people that they serve rather than bringing them into a closer relationship of true empathy. Um, you know, having, I think, uh, been in the, in the corporate world for 20 years, I, I know I came to recognize that I was actually suffering um, and let me try and put a little bit more detail to that, that I was, you know, playing a role uh, that I wasn't necessarily um, equipped to fully do. Um, I think I was, you know, very disciplined and ambitious, uh, certainly inclusive or hardworking. Um, but I remember even when I was, you know, in, in a leadership role or leading um, an agency at the time, I often got the feedback of, well, you know, you've got to be more radical in your thinking, you should take more risk, you should assert yourself more, or um, yeah, what else was there? Like, uh, be more decisive. Um, those were, that was sort of kind of feedback that I was getting. And suffering from this, I need to be someone who I'm not really, um, and in order to then play this role um, that I was given. And that didn't seemed to suit me because I actually wanted to just be myself and not have to uh, maybe take on characteristics that weren't truly me. Uh, the suffering sort of made me, um, had me be quite exhausted, um, exhausted from probably playing this role and not being who I really am. And hence, um, I stepped out of this and said, okay, I'm going to follow my inner calling, which is in a way associated with that being that I um, really want to I know, embolden leaders to be who they truly are. So that's what I 
that's what I do today. I, uh, with SoulWorks, which is the name of my company, I work with leaders who have this urge to transform, first of all, their organization, but then they realize they should also transform themselves uh, and shift something within themselves towards becoming a more human organization. Julia suggests that one of the first steps we need to take to create businesses that are more human is to recognize that there is more than just one way of being human. Yeah, you need to be assertive. And, you know, at some point I was, I even wondered, you know, these just, without wanting to make this agenda topic, but are these, um, you know, male characteristics? And, and am I responding to, well, that's not, really me because I feel that that's more masculine uh, than it is feminine or is that just how currently business is looked at that this is what the leadership role is then I just started to think about well what what is it what would what is it that you then want Julia if that isn't um, you know how you see leadership be played out what would stop your suffering um, how would you want to um, play this um, or rather how would you want to really uh, be in order to uh, fulfill a leadership role and then I just um, you know for me I started to see I'm uh, you know I'm, I'm very caring I want to um, I think I already said this you know I want to be inclusive I want to be very close to my uh, team members uh, really listen, listen deep, understand, uh, feel more connected with them. I don't want to be pushed on time. I don't want to be, um, yeah, just making decisions because I think they're cool. Julia's experience of the restrictive scope of male-dominated business culture wasn't problematic just because it didn't accept her feminine perspective. More broadly, that corporation created an alienating experience for both its employees and its customers because it was incapable of dealing with individual differences between the human beings it was working with. Sexism is a problem for women because it discriminates against them. However, sexism in business culture is also a problem for everybody else because it discriminates against difference itself. For generations, corporate culture has been synonymous with conformity. Mark Williams of People First imagines a new kind of corporate culture that embraces the misfit in order to create a dynamic organization that is able to adapt with more flexibility than a conventional corporate system. When you meet somebody and you say, oh, hello, and, and who, who are you? And, and you, you know, your job defines part of who you are. I think, I think that, that's, that part of automation is going to be a really interesting change. And it's not going to be great, I don't, I don't think, in the short term. So, we, so we've got to find ways, when money is off the table, to engage the humanness of everybody to connect in something meaningful. <laughs> I think it comes back to not relating to the person. So again, we're still a bit, we're still a bit Victorian uh, about 
the way that we run we run companies like a factory where we've just brought everybody from the local area and not actually say what is it about you that kind of when we piece you together as a group we're taking those individual people and and we look at personalization personalization in the consumer world obviously we're pumping millions into that so we can sell personalized ads and all sorts of things but in the enterprise world it's not even it's hardly hardly scratches the surface corporations may now have digital tools to work with rather than literal cogs and wheels mark points out though that digital businesses still have an industrial mindset organizing their workers into categories of interchangeable parts. Mark is working on ways to use new kinds of digital tools to help businesses use the unique qualities of their employees' individual identities. In this new way of working, being a misfit would become a unique professional advantage rather than a liability. Well, I think, I think it goes back to the Taylorism thing, in that a misfit is creative, it's, you know, it's personal to you. You're absolutely right in that a misfit is a term for me that's that's good. You know, that means my own particular individual set of skills, the way I've been brought up, everything that shaped me should be valued and valuable to somebody else. And it might not be, we're not going to all kind of run the world or, or, or whatever, but in, even in the small, and we tend to think of big jobs as important rather than, you know, the small, even in the detail of care jobs and other things, it's, it's my value into that world. When this big displacement of job happens, how do people find their worth? And it's in those, uh, and they can do it by the things that are individually great about them, which we've never bothered with before because we've just popped everybody into a category. It's that, it's that that's going to be key. And, it, and in that sense, finding, finding the kind of inner misfit is part of learning about yourself, finding what's good about yourself, uh, and also, you know, the bits that you need to grow in because, you know, we'd all get bored very quickly if we weren't growing there's an overall feeling of openness and so openness of you as a person and not wanting to be suppressed either by what job I do or by who I am you know uh, so society doesn't think I fit in this box and therefore uh, I want to kind of the movement to break free of any of those boundaries Mark tells us that when we find the way that we don't fit in. We find out something essential about our identities. In parallel, Aditi Karana explained to me that, as she sees it, identity isn't just about who we are. It's also about where we belong and where we don't. Something that I think about a lot is this question of belonging. And I think it's a question that's kind of central to my own identity because I grew up all over the place, moving from place to place all over the world. So I have always felt more of like a, I guess, a nomad or a global citizen than a citizen of any particular country. And so this idea of belonging is 
is kind of central to just my life. It's like a major theme in my life. And I think it's also a big theme that, you know, teenagers grapple with. Where do I belong? Where is my tribe? Who are my people? And so Mirror in the Sky is a book about a young girl who, like me, goes to a high school. I went to a high school that was predominantly white in Connecticut after years of attending international schools all over the world and felt like a tremendous sense of displacement. And at the same time, sort of that's the micro story of like, you know, how do you find your place uh, in an environment where you're kind of an outsider and you're different and confronting these issues of otherness. But at the same time, the entire world is kind of grappling with this question of, you know, where where do I belong? Um, what is the right life for me? And what is sort of this intersection of free will and destiny? How much of my life do I actually have control over? And how much of my path do I actually have some sort of say in? And how much of it is dictated by these various aspects of who I am uh, that form my identity, like race and class and gender? Business needs to embrace the perspectives of a more fluid kind of landscape. Maybe it's not a landscape at all, but an ocean of identities, not just in terms of gender, but also ethnicity, nationality, education, culture, and a range of possibilities that won't even become apparent to business culture until it begins to open itself up to the idea that it has more to gain by opening itself to unexpected experiences of identity than it does from keeping the gates closed. Andy Acaster brings it back to a theme that's found in every episode of this podcast, the advantage that comes from an honest acknowledgement of what we don't know about the identities of other people, but about ourselves too. We have so much more access to the idea of being able to understand the self and reflect on the self. I think that's maybe one of the great assets that comes, again, from living in a more urbanized, multicultural society is that we're continually confronted with the other, um, which gives us more opportunity, I think, to reflect on, on the self and on the individual. Um, but to do that, it involves a discipline of reflection. It involves um, a commitment to allowing yourself to be in process. And it involves a certain embrace of the unknown while still not panicking. As we approach the end of this, the last episode of the first season of This Human Business, we find that we have circled back to where we started. The quest to restore respect for basic humanity and business relies upon our willingness to come face to face with people who are different from us and to try to understand them on their own terms. Even as we know that for all the mountains of data that we might gather about them, the most important things about them will be things that we still don't know and still don't understand. Hope for humanity in business doesn't come from the project of reducing people into perfect predictability so that we can cram them into commercially convenient categories in a new kind of stereotyping on steroids. The most human movements are those that beautifully defy expectations.
If we can't step outside the algorithms, what hope do we have for the future? In a month from now, I will be bringing some of the ideas that you have heard about in this podcast to the House of Beautiful Business in Lisbon, Portugal. One of the most important projects there will be a session that builds on the material in this specific episode, a workshop on gender and identity in business. If you're coming to the house, I urge you to join me in that work in particular. I will close this season of this human business with the words of Fernando Pessoa, a businessman and craftsman of identity, a Portuguese poet who constructed over 70 different identities for himself during his short lifetime, each one of them as real to him as the legal identity into which he was born. Pessoa wrote in favor of radical fluidity in identity, saying, we should bathe our destinies as we do our bodies, change our lives just as we change our clothes. If these issues of gender and identity are at all interesting to you, don't just let it end with the conclusion of this podcast. Head on over to genderandbusiness.com to continue the discussion. There will be a hiatus before a second season of This Human Business returns, as we need those fallow times before we can find fertile ground again. Thank you for listening. Keep it human.